Arsenal for Democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple and Stitcher. And we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for $3 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee, and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. Gulf Stream Waters. This land was made you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 443, recorded on Monday, October 10th, 2022. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho, as always, is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. Happy Indigenous Peoples Day to you. This episode, we are talking about uh, our review of the book published this year from Verso, Internet for the People by Ben Tarnoff. Um, this is an interesting book that uh, I read on my way out to visit you, Rachel, and then I handed off the book to you, and you read it as well. And there was some stuff in this book that we really, really liked. There was some stuff in the book that we didn't necessarily agree with or wished, in most cases, not that we didn't agree with it, but that we wished it had gone farther. Um, so we're going to talk about the book, um, some of the things that we liked, some of the things that were thought-provoking questions raised in our mind that we would like to see expanded on as well. Um, so not a criticism of the book per se, and uh, I think a lot of our listeners would really enjoy reading it, um, but there's definitely going to be some points, as we'll discuss today, where we felt that you know it brought something up in our minds and then didn't really see it through to any sort of particular conclusion on those specific points. Um, So we'll just kind of go through an order. Obviously, we're not going to recap the entire book in detail, but there's definitely a lot of interesting um, points throughout that are brought up that kind of build on each other throughout. So that's going to be important for some of those later questions. So in the preface of the book, uh, Tarnoff reminds us, uh, and this is, I think, sets the tone for the book and and sort of the leftist perspective presented in this as opposed to some of the more uh, liberal perspectives on internet reform issues that he's actually criticizing in much of the book and which we agree with him on this point. Uh, Tarnoff reminds us that the internet is physical and material by describing the undersea cables, and he notes that those cables tend to follow the roots of earlier telephone and telegraph cables that had succeeded thus demonstrating continuity with earlier technologies. And of course, uh, listeners will recall that we did an episode about the uh, transatlantic telegraph cable that was first laid. Uh, We unlocked that episode last August, um, and you can listen to that. I'll put a link in the notes that'll be up with this at arsenalfordemocracy.com as always. But anyway, this sets the tone for this book and is something that we definitely did like about it. Uh, which is the way that this focuses on the third industrial revolution in terms of its physical processes first and foremost before it gets into some of the more nebulous like tech company stuff, uh, which can be a lot more vague and detached from the underlying physical technologies that 
hold up all of these uh, sort of more amorphous uh, virtual companies, so to speak. And there's another uh, great quote in the preface section that outlines his sort of thesis, which we do completely agree with, I think, um, especially after having read this, but even before, as we've talked about on the show, quote, internet reformers have some good ideas, but they never quite reach the root of the problem. The root is simple. The internet is broken because the internet is a business. End quote. So this book focuses on U.S. public development of the internet and then its privatization in the 90s, which he describes as a process, not an event. Uh, another great quote, the real money didn't lie in monetizing access, but in monetizing activity. Um, so this is the perspective that he's outlining in this book, um, which we do agree with. And as we said, our critique mostly of the book was just that we wanted it to go farther uh, in, and elaborate on certain points. Uh, so the first chapter, uh, you know, riffing on the the famous uh, quote from the senator from Alaska describing the internet as a series of pipes, is about the pipes, the the actual physical infrastructure of the internet. Um, usually not, you know, usually like cables, but still a, a physical thing, not just uh, an amorphous thing. However, in some cases, even in the early days, there was, uh, you know, more amorphous wireless components and that gets back into some of the points that we talked about on our recent episode about western union where we were talking about some of their alternative technologies we talked about things like microwave relays and uh telex fax machines and so forth so there's a lot of like potential physical asset infrastructure to uh discuss here and uh chapter one uh, of part one in the pipes gets into that. Um, and this is where what he refers to as a people's history of the internet. Uh, so he opens with an anecdote from 1977 that I'd not heard about uh, before, about a field test of worldwide data packet transmission across mediums from a van transmitting via radio waves in Silicon Valley to an office building in Menlo Park, converting to electric signals traveling along copper telephone wires from the West Coast to the East Coast, then traveling via satellite across the Atlantic Ocean to Oslo, then to London, then to Goonhilly Satellite Earth Station in Cornwall, then to space and back to Earth, landing at ETAM Earth Station, West Virginia, ultimately traveling back to California, but not before stopping at Cambridge, Massachusetts. Whew, that was a long way for those packets to travel, uh, but that was kind of an interesting story that underscores some of the physical aspects and technological aspects underpinning the Third Industrial Revolution. Uh, and then he describes why some of this work was happening and, and being experimented on. Uh, so DARPA was buying mainframe computers for U.S. universities that were doing contract research work and other academic work for the Department of Defense. Uh, but they didn't want to spend an unlimited amount of money on buying mainframes, which had a limited computing capacity but weren't always in use. By proposing to link them together, the universities would be able to share computing resources. This idea became ARPANET, launched in 1969, and it rested on experimental packet-switching technology that could break down any message into constituent fractional data transmissions, send them all to the same place, and reassemble them. By breaking them down, they can be sent over multiple routes concurrently to save time or not overwhelm the capacity of a given transmission line if there were too many packets for a single line to handle. Um, now, AT&T both refused to build ARPANET and refused to buy it from the government when it was completed. Uh, because that then therefore remained in public hands, the government could impose certain conditions, like requiring open source sharing of computer science and engineering research by those using the system, which helped it to take off and advance faster. 
This led to the development in the mid-1970s of the Internet Protocol, a free, non-proprietary, universal, common language for linking together any existing networks. And this is such a great thing that he talks about in this book because it's a reminder that the only way that any of these businesses on the internet can actually operate is because at the beginning, it wasn't businesses that were developing and running this. It wasn't proprietary in a closed system. It was all interoperable. And that's something that we're going to circle back to later uh, in this review as well. Now, although ARPANET was useful for DOD university contracts, the DOD also really wanted to be able to connect troops in the field or overseas bases with live access to mainframe computer power back uh, home. Uh, These were called strategic computing assets, and they wanted to be able to do this wirelessly, hence doing tests like they did in 1977. Of course, they were not picturing being able to take very powerful computers into the field with you, which is what ended up later happening. The Internet Protocol, designed in 1974, would link together all the existing global communications networks and mediums accessible to the U.S. military so that packets could be seamlessly switched to and from troops on the far side of the world. Um, so this is another example of the way in which, uh, you know, the these 1970s research and development technologies were being uh, funded and used by the military, uh, which is something we talked about in relation to container ships and the Vietnam War and so forth, uh, and, and these... Uh, experiments take on a particular character because of their military dimension and funding, um, even if we get other benefits out of them on the civilian side. The data packets had to be able to move across physical copper phone lines, radio or microwave arrays, and satellites instantly without data getting lost on the way. They needed to be able to go to or from moving vehicles on land, sea, sky, or space. TCP slash IP succeeded in delivering on this goal envisioned for the military and in doing so allowed the creation of a global internet that could communicate across technologies, countries, and cultures. Tarnoff argues that the only reason this was developed was because of the U.S. military of the early to mid-1970s physically operating all over the world. So the Third Industrial Revolution is a legacy of American imperialism in this period. Uh, In the preface, he makes a note of the relationship between the British military and the spread of the telegraph worldwide across the oceans and continents in an earlier era. However, he also observes that the TCP IP envisioned for connecting strategic mainframes back home to field assets on the move was actually initially just used by the DoD instead to link together their growing assortment of fixed line networks, allowing them to talk to each other. ARPANET didn't even adopt this new protocol until 1983, and that at least according to Tarnoff's history of this, marks the real creation of the internet because ARPANET was just the crown jewel and the protocol now allowed it to interconnect with other networks and that becomes the internet, right? It's not just ARPANET, it's ARPANET talking to other isolated, previously isolated networks and that is now the internet. Over the 1980s, academics had a growing interest in getting access to the internet and it was as a whole more useful the more stuff and people that got onto it. And this is going to be an important point as well that we're going to come back to. So the U.S. government's National Science Foundation, beginning in 1986, subsidized the creation of regional networks of researchers who would then be nationally networked to each other. Most American researchers could easily access the Internet by the end of the 1980s, but the plan was always to privatize the NSF net after it had enough users to make that viable. The physical infrastructure couldn't handle the level of data traffic being sent over it, even with NSF restrictions on usage. And the establishment of the more user-friendly World Wide Web system for utilizing the internet was about to dramatically increase demand for data transmissions. Now, unfortunately, 
This raises some interesting questions that the book doesn't really get into and I'd like to know more about, which is if the physical infrastructure was reaching basically peak data capacity, uh, what was the plan to handle this? Um, I I would have liked to know more about that from a material standpoint, right? Because that's something that he talks about in the preface. Um, When NSFNet privatization began after the congressional hearings in 1992, only five companies had enough infrastructure to operate part of a backbone of the internet instead of the government. Um, This is Tarnoff's history here. Uh, The infrastructure hardware wasn't sold off. It was just closed down in favor of private infrastructure. Um, Previously, anyway, the NSF had always merely subsidized and leased private hardware for its networks rather than owning it directly. There were no special conditions or regulations imposed on the new private operators. And by 1995, the transfer to this oligopoly of companies was completed. I don't remember off the top of my head if he specifies which companies uh, at a later point in the book. Uh, Now, Al Gore, as a senator, had championed government support for building out the Internet infrastructure, and he had always articulated a public-private partnership of private contractors operating the networks under government control and supervision. But as vice president, he had to yield to the Clinton-slash-DNC's cozy relationship with the telecom companies. Billions of dollars in government investment into the Internet was sold off to these telecom companies, because they had barely donated over $100,000 to the DNC in late 1993. I mean, talk about cheap influence buying. But Tarnoff himself is careful to note in the book that in 1992 and 1993, it was already clear that nearly everyone in a decision-making role was already assuming privatization as a foregone and good outcome. This was just sort of the hegemonic ideological perspective of the time, that everyone in power was coming from, you know, Republicans, Democrats, etc. Everyone had basically agreed that there was going to be at least some significant, if not complete, aspect of privatization in the 90s. This was already decided, so to speak. Uh, However, Senator Daniel Inouye and the Telecommunications Policy Roundtable unsuccessfully promoted an alternative vision whereby the telecom operators of the internet would be required to reserve 20% of their data handling capacity for unrestricted public uses for free by qualifying organizations such as libraries, nonprofits, and educational institutions who would in turn have to make these internet resources freely available to the general public. This would have built on models already used by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the USPS. This bill, however, was killed easily by lobbyists, but It's a sort of interesting uh, what-if alternative to imagine, and that is, again, something we'll come back to later. Uh, Tarnoff also points out that the Internet itself, under NSF control, had been a network of nonprofit networks to begin with, and if they had been allowed to sell access to private companies, including telecoms or online commercial vendors, they could have used these resources and revenues to continue building out the infrastructure and making it freely available to those same public benefit institutions that the Inouye bill had talked about. Uh, briefly mentioned in this chapter as well are some local nonprofit free dial-up internet access providers from the 80s and 90s, which couldn't continue without federal subsidies, uh, and so they withered away. Um, so Rachel, could you talk about chapter two now? Yeah, so chapter two is titled The Plunder Continues, and it really focuses on these oligopoly of of companies that have taken over this previously publicly owned infrastructure. So the current big six internet telecoms are mostly tied to the original big five of the early 90s privatization, 
Um, he mentions by name AT&T, Sprint, and Verizon. And he differentiates between the deep infrastructure companies and the ISPs, although they're sometimes the same. Um, it, it depends on who owns the pipes versus who's just providing services on the pipes. Um, so 76% of internet service provider subscriptions are through Comcast, Charter, Verizon, or AT&T. And quote, they actively collaborate to avoid competing with one another, end quote. And we've kind of touched on how these kind of uh, slice and dice uh, of maps kind of happens. Um, I think we previously talked about cable TV and other, um, other providers of utilities, I think telephone companies as well. So the 1996 telecom bill created a distinction between companies offering quote unquote telecommunication services versus quote unquote information services. And the latter were exempted from the old common carrier legal classification. Dial-up internet over phone lines was under common carrier status, and any company could offer internet access subscriptions over another company's phone infrastructure, but cable internet is not common carrier since 2002, so each company installs their own lines. It's just a huge waste, obviously. Yeah, very redundant. Um, a 2005 SCOTUS ruling affirmed this designation and thus put most little ISPs out of business because they couldn't build their own infrastructure to compete with the big dogs, who no longer had to allow them access. However, broadband was classified as common carrier in 2015, and then again reclassified in 2017 as a non-common carrier. Um, so the big dogs can easily squeeze out the little guys um, who can't compete, can't provide their own um, services because they can't build out that infrastructure. Now, then he goes into net neutrality, which if you're listening to this, you already know that what that is. Um, in basic terms, we've talked about it before on a few different episodes. So let's get into the, the details from Tarnoff. So first, there's the rise of major platform corporations by the 2010s, companies using the internet to sell goods and services to customers. And this works well with an oligopoly of providers and infrastructure owners, as they can sign contracts with each other, especially in the absence of net neutrality, to have designated servers and wiring, etc., to deliver data faster and more efficiently than simply letting it find its own way via the entire internet's possible pathways. I think um, ideas that were floated in the past was like Netflix would create deals with the ISPs so their data would be um, prioritized over other people's data. Or would have dedicated lines that only carried Netflix data to your area. Exactly. Content Delivery Network, or CDN clouds, also provide physical proximity of data to customers to enhance speed of access. Many of the big platform corporations now directly co-own and lay submarine data cables across the ocean to improve their delivery speeds. Half of all undersea cable bandwidth is now owned or leased by Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Microsoft. This in-house build and use model differs from the older model of building physical communications infrastructure to sell bandwidth space to other companies or customers. And quoting from the book, quote, after decades of deepening private control, Americans pay some of the most expensive rates in the world in exchange for awful service. Average monthly internet costs are higher in the US than in Europe or Asia, according to a 2020 study conducted by researchers at the think tank New America, while the US ranks 12th in average connection speeds below Romania and Thailand. Not coincidentally, American ISPs regularly sit near the bottom of the annual American Customer Satisfaction Index, even lower than airlines and health insurers, end quote. And ISPs have kind of become 
internet slumlords. Um, they often refuse to make upgrades to infrastructure while dispersing customer rate hikes to executive compensation, shareholder dividends, and stock buybacks. I think we've all heard the the song and dance from these ISPs. We're we're working on on upgrading your service for you, but that that never really materializes, and instead you just get higher and higher bills with very little um, in return. And you you often see in the news that the executives are making huge bonuses, they're giving out dividends, and they're buying back their stocks. And so all of this is at the at the cost of you. Um, you're just paying more and more and getting less and less over the years. And this service is very, very uneven. A 2018 Microsoft study estimated nearly half the U.S. population still lacks access to broadband speed internet, mostly rural and or low-income populations. In particular, the low-income non-white populations. Even people who try to get broadband are sometimes provided inferior service speeds and reliability despite paying full price. And this is known as digital redlining. And I think we've talked about this before. Um, Idaho is one of the worst states for rural internet access. So the, again, these rate hikes are, are justified as going to be expanding service, um, expanding uh, the areas that internet access is going to move into, and that just never materializes. So now 17% of US adults have no internet access other than smartphone data plans. And Pew Research in 2015 found that smartphone-only internet users really struggled to perform key tasks like filling out job application forms. So more and more uh, forms, uh, paperwork, has moved online, which um, it's hard to deal with on a mobile device. Um, oftentimes these forms, especially government website forms, aren't really uh, optimized for mobile usage. They don't convert easily to a mobile format, so you're just kind of out of luck when you're trying to fill out these these forms that you need to to get a service or to get a job, um, and it's just not ideal. Um, and so a lot of people are lacking access to some of these basic services. Turnoff also mentions that during the early pandemic crisis, uh, people were crowding into parking lots of places offering free Wi-Fi in order to get things done, including unemployment filings and school classwork or homework. I think there were quite a few news uh, articles about people kind of flocking to like McDonald's parking lots just to get basic access to be able to do work or school. Um, and it obviously shows how unequal um, internet access is. Um, another 2018 Pew study found almost a fifth of U.S. teens had trouble with homework assignments due to lack of home internet access. And I'm sure, obviously, during the pandemic, that just um, morphed into an even bigger problem. Um, not only would you not be able to do basic research for essays, you couldn't even like access your classroom, your virtual classroom. Um, and so a lot of students fell behind because they lacked that home internet access. Um, because democracy requires survival needs to be materially reachable, quote, access to the internet is one of freedom's material preconditions. It is one of the resources that people need in order to rule themselves. A system that allocates this resource solely according to the logic of profit is incapable of providing it to everyone as a matter of right. If profit is the principle that determines how connectivity is distributed, millions will be forced to go without it. Those who can't afford to pay, or those who live in places that aren't profitable enough to invest in. Many more will have only a precarious grasp on it, 
contingent on the size and regularity of their paychecks. Even the lucky ones, those who can consistently afford the extortionate fees of the broadband cartel, will endure the abysmal speeds caused by chronic underinvestment, end quote. And the end of chapter two has some great Marxian musings about the role of the individual capitalist being irrelevant to the larger forces of capitalism. Um, sounds a lot like a Daniel de Leon speech. Um, anyway, his point is to show that profit motive in a socially necessary utility is inherently contradictory to the public need, and any democratic control, because it's entirely out of anyone's control on some level, once the profit, profit accumulation engine gets going. So that's, uh, that's definitely something, uh, a point we've talked um, on, previously, on previous episodes. We've definitely um, emphasized that point. Yeah, I really liked this chapter because I feel like it's so easy for people to sort of hand wave away the the very physical, tangible material dimensions of the way that the internet works in terms of its physical infrastructure, that comparison to internet slumlords, digital redlining, things like that. It, it, it's very easy for people, especially in the wireless era and so forth, to just sort of like pretend that the internet comes from the sky and you don't have to like think about it and it's like okay well lucky you but it's a different experience for other people uh, a shockingly large segment of the population and you know those people are getting left behind and understandably resentful of, of that and and they're not just being left behind from like the goodies like netflix they're being left behind from all the like necessary you know forms and ability to do homework and things like that like this is not good and i like the way that he illustrates the relationship between the platform companies which is something he's going to talk more about later in the book and the oligopoly of the deep infrastructure providers um and the way that those sort of feed into each other um and i also just like which is again a theme throughout the book this idea that like there is not a way that you just break up this into smaller companies and it somehow solves the problems. His point again and again throughout this is the profit motive is the problem here and you can't get around that. You have to have it not have a profit motive in order for the internet to actually properly function the way that it could. So in chapter three called The People's Pipes, Tarnoff opens by pointing out, which I didn't realize, that the nationally famous 2010 Chattanooga, Tennessee Municipal Gigabit Internet Project was undertaken by the city's public power utility that had been launched alongside the Tennessee Valley Authority Project in 1935. You can listen to our April 2022 episode on the TVA and rural electrification. The Chattanooga Project was sort of a happy byproduct of government reinvestment in infrastructure. Because they received federal stimulus aid back, this was back in uh, you know 2009, to install a fiber internet-based smart grid system onto the existing power grid to help detect and correct for problems, something that they were much more willing to undertake than most private power companies at the time. Uh, this public utility set up through the TVA originally suddenly had an underutilized fiber internet grid in place all over their service area, including right up to people's homes. And so that latter point meant that blistering last mile speeds were now deliverable in this area at world quality standards. Uh, rates were very reasonable since it was getting built either way. 
and the utility even offered a cheap, somewhat slower service to low-income residents, although there was a rate floor imposed by state law to protect private ISP companies from being undercut too much by the public provider. Now, although Chattanooga is famous for its project, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance believes that some 900 U.S. municipalities have quietly installed publicly owned or co-op internet networks, according to Tarnoff. The co-op model is based on the rural electric and telephone co-ops that we talked about in that episode on rural electrification in the New Deal era. Three rural farm counties of North Dakota have provided a few thousand residents with such good universal fiber internet access that rural North Dakotans have more fiber internet proportionally than urban North Dakotans or even than all urban Americans. This was achieved on the back of the work begun in the 90s by a group of North Dakota telephone co-ops buying 60-plus rural internet exchanges from one of the big for-profit telecoms that was divesting because they no longer wanted to be responsible for maintaining and operating them. These rural co-ops are 501c12 organizations that operate at cost, and they return excess revenues to members, and they actually elect their board members. Now, interestingly, um, when I was on the train reading this book and I was going out to see Rachel, uh, I happened to look out the window as I was reading this exact section, and we stopped in an Amtrak station in a rural area. And uh, it was not North Dakota, but, you know, uh, it was a, a the Great Plains region broadly. And uh, I, I see a little sign, which I took a picture of for Rachel, of uh, boasting on the side of this Amtrak station that the municipality had provided a uh, public uh, fiber internet there. And I, I found that uh, to be uh, a funny coincidence. Um, Rachel, you wanted to talk more about um, the section that Tarnoff describes here uh, with a contrasting situation in, in Detroit and some of the efforts that have been made there to try to address that. Yeah. So in Detroit, more than 60% of low-income households have no home broadband, and 70% of school-age children have no home internet of any kind. So this is kind of another example of that digital redlining. Um, So it's not being offered to these poor, majority black communities. So to address this inequality, the Equitable Internet Initiative, which is a program under the Detroit Community Technology Project, uses money raised from foundations and a donated upstream broadband connection to bring broadband to hundreds of homes. So a system of wireless transmitters connects the broadband to community groups in three different neighborhoods and from there into people's homes. So it's kind of the the links of this chain. So not only do these households get free or reduced cost internet access based on their uh, financial resources, they're also connected to each other by an intranet Um, So a a local access network, um, so information on local resources can be exchanged and um, just information can be exchanged and communication between members of of a community can be exchanged. And this was really important during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, uh, The the Equitable Internet Initiative also created Wi-Fi hotspots in these neighborhoods as internet access points that became essential for work and school, as we mentioned earlier. And DCTP also trains people in the neighborhoods to help maintain and improve the network and to help the community as, quote unquote, digital stewards. So not only is DCTP building and strengthening Internet access, they are building and strengthening the community by connecting people and creating relationships where they didn't previously exist. Um, So uh, they they are creating this these relationships, creating this community um, as kind of a bottom up community. resource that can fight back against this uh, lack of access. 
um, quoting from the book, privatization does not just describe the political process whereby the internet became a business, but a social process whereby people's mode of interacting with the internet was engineered for businesses' benefit. And so DCP, D, DCTP is fighting back against that by creating these, these organic connections that is not profit-driven. Um, something to note, uh, municipal broadband is restricted or banned outright in 18 states due to ISP lobbying. And um, a highly contingent outcome, this process of privatization became, through the alchemy of ideology, a necessary and natural one. So it, it, it looked like a foregone conclusion that the internet was going to be privatized and turned into this profit-driven uh, um, utility, but it didn't always have to be that way. And so some of these projects are, are fighting back against that um, inevitability of privatization. Um, so fiber internet is so cheap to run and maintain versus traditional wiring and cabling that it could be inexpensively given away to, for free to residents once installed, if that were legalized. Um, to further reduce the tax funding of such a plan, revenues could come from compelling government and government-aided institutions, such as hospitals and universities, to to subscribe to and pay full rates on the community fiber. And Tarnoff emphasizes that small community networks may be a starting point, but are insufficient to the problem at hand. He acknowledges the advantages of localism, but then raises all the usual problems with parochial and unequal American localism. So shades of Wyman's essay on the local landed gentry, Tarnoff warns, quote, decentralization is not inherently democratizing it can just as easily serve to concentrate power as to distribute it, um, end quote. So I think that's something that's very important to keep in mind. Um, it, we want to emphasize the importance of, of decentralization, but it's not the end-all be-all. You have to actively be in the process of democratizing as well. Um, three of the four biggest ISP companies also own and operate backbone slash core internet infrastructure through which nearly all non-local traffic must pass, and this creates a significant risk that they will simply cut off or throttle access to local community ISPs that threaten their ISP business. However, if a Green New Deal ever does upgrade the long-distance power grid to optimize renewable energy distribu distribution nationally, there will be fiber lines and equipment laid all over the country on a national scale version of the Chattanooga situation which means there is another in window of opportunity for a nationalized or federated community fiber internet infrastructure. Um, Tarnoff ends the chapter by saying that no experiment in democratic public internet locally will ever survive the unchecked national power of the private oligopoly and must therefore prevail against them with a national alternative or else be beaten back. And um, while I was reading this book, I did run across two articles that got published in August of 2022, so after this book was published, that really highlighted some of the things from some of the concepts from this chapter. So I found an Ars Technica um, article about a man who built an ISP um, instead of paying Comcast. Um, so uh, it, uh, it talks about a man named Jared Mauch who was trying to get internet to his rural Michigan home. And he ran into overpriced and underperforming plans from AT&T and Comcast. Um, Comcast even wanted to charge him uh, $50,000 to expand the cable network to his house. So in response, he built his own ISP, bringing fiber internet to about 30 homes in his rural Michigan area. 
And as of the publication of this article, um, Mauk now has about 70 customers and will extend his network to nearly 600 more properties with money from the American Rescue Plan's coronavirus state and local fiscal recovery funds, um, he told Ars in a phone uh, interview in mid-July. So uh, under the terms of the contract he signed with Washtenaw County, he will provide 100 megabytes per second download speeds at about $55 a month to about 417 households in Freedom, Lima, Lodi, and CO townships. And um, he said his installation fees are typically $199. And unlike many larger ISPs, he provides simple bills that contain a single line item for internet service and no extra fees. And Mauch also committed to participate in the Federal Communications Commission's Affordable Connectivity Program, which provides subsidies of $30 a month for households that meet income eligibility requirements. Um, so uh, Mauch is kind of an outlier. He's a network architect um, in his primary job. So he already had the technical know-how to embark on this project. So he was able to do something that not very many other people would be able to do. Um, but in doing so, he was able to provide a much needed service to his rural Michigan area. Um, so I thought that was an important thing to point out. Although, again, the other thing that's an outlier here and is one reason why the really rural areas are the ones that have succeeded with these alternatives is that they're not a threat to the major companies because the major companies have no interest in doing them in these areas. If these things start to proliferate more widely on a larger scale, then they become a threat because they're competing in more profitable turfs. But again, you know, he's got 70 customers right now, might get to about 500 or so with the county deal that he signed. That's still a relatively small pool. If it continued to grow beyond that, then, you know, Tarnoff's point in the book is cases like this then become a threat to these powerful capital formations who would attack them. Yeah, exactly. Um, another article I found uh, showed the other end of the ISP effectiveness spectrum. Um, so I found a, a Verge article about um, the FCC rejecting Starlink um, owned by SpaceX uh, application for rural broadband subsidies. So quoting from the article, the Federal Communications Commission has rejected Starlink's application for $885 million in federal subsidies that it would use to provide satellite internet to broadband customers in rural areas. The FCC cites the SpaceX-owned company's $600 dish and states that Starlink, quote, failed to demonstrate, end quote, that it, quote, could de deliver the promised service, end quote. Um, Quote, Starlink's technology has real promise, FCC Chair Jessica Rosenworcel explains, but the question before us was whether to publicly subsidize the still-developing technology for consumer broadband, which requires that users purchase a $600 dish with nearly $900 million in universal service funds until 2032, end quote. Starlink increased the price of its starter kit and internet service earlier this year, to get set up, Starlink users now have to pay a $599 upfront fee for the satellite dish, dubbed Dishy McFlatface, on top of the $110 per month price for internet service. It previously cost $499 for the starter kit and $99 per month. 
Last year, the FCC warned Starlink and other companies that subsidies couldn't be used to add connectivity to, quote, parking lots and well-served urban environments, end quote. A report from the media policy organization Free Press revealed that $111 million of Starlink's funding was set to go to urban areas that don't need the additional connectivity. In an effort to, quote-unquote, clean up the program, the FCC asked providers to give up funding for areas that aren't in need of service. So I think this just goes to show that it's more profitable to serve these urban environments. So Starlink was just going to use a lot of its uh, resources to provide extra service to these urban environments while giving a lot of lip service to the to um, rural Internet connectivity while actually not providing that that service. Uh, so chapter four, we'll just skim through very briefly. This is one area of the book where there's actually some really great stuff that I didn't want to be quoting at length because I wanted to encourage people to get the book and read it. Uh, this particular chapter focuses on political organizing and mobilization around new conceptions of an internet for the people. Pages 63 and 64 in the hardcover have some great musings on the sort of neoliberal ideological concept of the homo economicus and the idea of consumer choice in the markets as a means of exercising political power and influence in the absence of anything real. Obviously, he's trying to present an alternative of something that would be more real. Um, he also addresses the question fairly briefly uh, that people usually bring up when you start talking about not really municipal internet, but like, what about, uh, you know, government nationalized internet, things like that. Uh, he addresses the question of state authoritarianism over a public internet, but he dismisses that as an objection on two grounds, um, I think fairly easily. First, that the U.S. government is already happily doing all of those terrible things on a private internet anyway, uh, so they're not going to do more of that than they already are. Um, and second, that it is a political choice, uh, not a medium or ownership question as to whether the government will spy extensively on network communications, because they do it vastly less with the Postal Service, and they are much more bound by laws and traditions going back to the beginning of the U.S. Post. And I thought that was so interesting, because I wouldn't have really thought of that. But that is true. Like, obviously, there is some amount of government surveillance over the postal system, but there's a lot less of it. And there's also a lot more of a social idea that's not even necessarily about laws or whatever or norms that says it's a social norm that says, hey, people's mail is private. Quit trying to read it. And the government has more respect for, for that than they have with the way that the Internet has been structured. And, it, and he says that's not necessarily an ownership question. That is a question of like, are we going to fight for that politically? Um and maybe people would be more inclined to fight for that kind of stuff if they actually had a real vested interest in uh, defining and protecting the Internet in a different form because they're not going to rally to, like, protect, you know, Verizon from the government, uh, basically. Um, not that Verizon's, you know, not cooperative with the government anyway. Uh, so chapter five is called Up the Stack. Um, so the success of the internet slash web platform companies was not what was sold on them. Like it wasn't the products, um, but but rather it was, Tarnoff says it was the monetization of social participation by the users. And this was something interesting that I hadn't really thought about. 
Um, for example, writing reviews of products or vendors that other users could read and even rate for helpfulness, that is a social participation element of a commercial transaction. And that is apparently what actually boosted a bunch of these companies to success. Uh, and he says the success stories like eBay and Amazon included this, this type of feature, while the dot-com bubble e-commerce failures of the same origin period uh, were often trying to provide those same exact goods or services, but they lacked that social communication and community content element. I um, mean, that's an interesting thing to think about in terms of the social dimensions of the internet, even before the so-called social platforms era. People sort of have, even in a commercial context, have this instinct of they want to talk to each other and have that community relationship with each other. Um, and it's a shame that they kind of only get to do it through these commercialized mediums. Now, here's an interesting part that I did not completely agree with. Um, I wonder what he would think about it. But Tarnoff describes eBay as an explicit fusion of market and community, which he looks at in capitalist terms, and he repeatedly describes it as such. I, however, was much more reminded of community markets in pre-capitalist medieval Europe these were often sponsored by a corporate or institutional entity like the church or a craft guild, and that host entity would collect a fee for hosting it, and they held a monopoly on the right to play host. These markets only worked because of community relationships, however. Tarnoff also refers to eBay linking buyers and sellers, but not shipping and not warehousing, which again sounds much more like a medieval market host than an actual capitalist. Um, in my view, a capitalist would be also a kind of producer, uh, a cross-market arbitrage trade specialist or a banker, uh, if, especially if you're comparing it to the, you know, the late medieval, early modern period. Um, Tarnoff describes eBay as a middleman, um, but again, I think that's uh, semantically incorrect, which I think is significant to think about here, um, because a middleman is actually traveling and between a buyer and seller, and they're acting as a buyer in between them, whereas eBay was just hosting a market, um, which is a different thing. That's not a middleman. The church taking a cut off of their medieval market does not make them a middleman. That just means that they're the host venue, and they're taking a hosting fee, that's a different type of transaction as opposed to like a guy who goes to one part of Europe and buys a, a textile at one price and goes to somewhere else that doesn't have that textile and sells it at a much higher markup. And that's how that guy makes his money. He's not making the textiles. He's just transporting them and then using arbitrage to get a higher price out of it. Uh, Tarnoff again uh, approaches this realization but then he sails right past it when he t starts talking about how the platform company must hold a sovereignty over the community market, shaping the rules and intervening to adjudicate disputes in the market that could not be resolved by the forum. So again, he, he's like coming pretty close to describing a medieval marketplace uh, and then doesn't quite like execute on that, which was a little bit disappointing to me. But I kind of wonder, like, maybe he would actually agree with my critique of that section. Um, I just like thought that was a valid point that like one of the roles of eBay is to step in and, and referee if there's a dispute, which again, that's not what a middleman does, right? That's a totally different function within a commercial transaction. Um, and in the next chapter in passing, he compares the eBay model to collecting commercial tenant rents. 
which is again that's a different way of looking at it and is again that's a different type of relationship than a middleman um so rachel could you talk about that next chapter about online malls yeah so chapter six online malls um he's comparing the online mall to the real world equivalent so a mall was originally a community meeting space and it just became quickly uh, a shrine to commerce and the internet kind of followed that same pathway. It was meant to be a meeting place and it quickly became um, profit driven, commerce driven. Um, so kind of changing its purpose over time. Um, so he says that the monetization of data is similar in effect to harnessing coal for the industrial revolution. Um, Google was undergirded by public money from DARPA and the NSF, which wanted a reliable way to access useful and relevant web pages on an exploding web. So it was originally Google was used to index websites, um, to search those websites and serve information to a, a, a searcher. And every user and every search on Google left a piece of data that could be used initially for fixing site or algorithm problems, but by the early 2000s, it was used for selling ads more effectively. So in 2002, Google AdWords began auctioning ad space next to searches of popular words and applying a quality filter so that higher quality ad ads users actually engaged with would get brighter, better priority even over higher bidders, which helped filter out trashy ads that users hated. This not only made the user experience better, but it also generated more money for all involved, not the users. Um, Tarnoff does cite uh, Shoshana Zuboff's concepts of quote-unquote behavioral surplus and quote-unquote surveillance capitalism monetized data being a heretofore largely unexploited, basically free, highly lucrative raw material. Um, so Bill, you kind of made a, a connection um, between those concepts. Yeah, so going back to his analogy that the monetization of data had a similar effect to harnessing coal for the Industrial Revolution, coal does require you to put in a bunch of capital, though, to get that out uh, of the ground to, to mine that. And so when he's again, citing Zuboff and talking about this behavioral surplus uh, and the way that surveillance capitalism takes this little data and then turns it into something that's very profitable. I was then thinking about like, well, what would have been the thing that would have been more like that than coal um, in the Industrial Revolution? And I was thinking, I mean, I think it doesn't quite, it couldn't have worked probably because of different energy content. But like, I was imagining you know, if the Industrial Revolution had been powered by human and animal manure instead of mined coal, right? That was something that was a largely unexploited. It was sometimes used, but not to like power a factory or anything. It was basically free. You didn't have to mine it. You didn't have to have a lot of capital resources. It wasn't like owned by the king and that sort of thing. Um, and it just kind of was a funny thing in my head as I was reading this. Um, different ways of thinking about and analogizing these different concepts, I guess. Um, but continue, if you will. So many other companies in the marketing and insurance spaces had previously spent enormous sums trying to extract or harvest small amounts of useful data about customers or potential customers that they might be able to profit from. But the Google breakthrough was collecting it basically for free as an incidental byproduct of their main product. And by collecting vastly more of it than anyone else, they could optimize faster toward further money-making opportunities. Uh, today, of course, the data is very aggressively collected and collated from many different sources, not passively collected incidentally. But Google had proved how much this raw material was actually worth. 
so that it suddenly made more sense to mine or harvest it on a larger scale than what the legacy companies had been doing on a smaller scale in the pre-internet decades of the post-war 20th century. And today, Google and Facebook together control 59% of the digital ad market, and both ad programs based on user data at the two companies were headed by Sheryl Sandberg sequentially. So she's kind of the the head of, of these operations, um, kind of the figurehead. Um, and engaging users enough to retain them on the site instead of leaving the site became an imperative since it meant more ads served and more data generated or even willingly uploaded. And keeping users on the site by any means necessary became the, the primary goal. Um, internet companies are protect, protected by Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act from liability for content other people post, even though the companies actively encourage posting extreme or at least inflammatory content that will keep people on the site. So now sites become this addictive um, outrage machine, basically, just to keep people on the site and looking at the ads that they're serving. Um, kind of hilarious in all of this is that online ads always actually proved quite tricky to get people to click on uh, or pay much attention to them if they saw them at all. The setup is destroying a lot of things for a pretty overvalued commodity. So far, the platforms themselves haven't suffered financially from this problem as the beneficiaries of the overvaluing of digital ads, but the user experience has definitely suffered as more and more ads get served to us over time. Um, I've heard people especially uh, complain about Facebook and Instagram as just serving ads like every two or three posts even. So all you're seeing is just a series of ads um, getting shoved in your face while you're trying to find um, posts from your friends or from other people you follow actually useful information. You're just getting served ads basically um, a full third to half of the time you're spending on the site. Yeah, and then as he said, also that they're intentionally trying to inflame people to keep them riled up and on the site with the obvious effects that we don't need to go into broader than that. Yeah, he does kind of go into that in a future chapter. So we'll explain more about that as we as we move through the book. Um, so chapter seven is Elastic Empires. Um, so this is focusing on Amazon. And Amazon's big breakthrough to profitability was not its costly warehouse and logistics networks that threatened to take it down in the late 90s, but rather its launch of Amazon Marketplace in 2000, which was a platform technology like eBay where third-party sellers listed products and were responsible for their own shipping and could be reviewed by the buyer. This basically bought the company time to streamline their in-house logistics and warehouse operations to be more viable. Another key change for the business was the shift in online purchase habits from rare items to everyday needs, the latter obviously enjoying the clear benefits of economies of scale. Um, Amazon Marketplace remains a huge feature of the site by sales volume, but now the third-party vendors, which are often real and quite sizable business, not just some guy, are able to use Amazon delivery services instead of having to ship on their own. Amazon also started offering in-house business loans to these vendors. In a darker intrigue move, Amazon not only harvested customer data to enhance sales, but also harvested third-party vendor data to figure out which arenas to kill off in favor of in-house focus on providing that to customers. Um, quoting from the book, Amazon not only competes with sellers, in other words, it also uses their data against them, end quote. Um, I think uh, there's been articles about this in the past where um, 
like Amazon Basics kind of creates um, their own products that directly go against the sellers that they used to support, um, often undercutting them and driving them out of business. So I think uh, we've seen that process happen many times, uh, like with clothing, um, other basic items like groceries and stuff like that. So um, just undercutting the sellers that provided them this data um, in the to, in the beginning. Um, data also proved crucial to cracking the nut on optimizing logistics and warehouse operations. Um, Amazon also moved into enterprise product provision, especially Amazon Web Services. Uh, Tarnoff argues that cloud storage services are effectively an update of networked mainframe time sharing in the 60s that helped lead to the internet being created in the first place. More narrowly, like an institution with a big IBM mainframe selling time to a company that can afford a mainframe of its own, Amazon sells server space to companies that need vast data server centers, but can't make those kind of capital investments or would prefer to rent them instead of owning them because of the flexibility. So Tarnoff talks at length about the scalability of the virtual servers that Amazon was able to offer companies that were starting out and might or might not take off suddenly, but didn't want to invest hugely in early physical assets or hiring computer engineers and technicians. I'm reminded here of the model of just-in-time shipping orders from small factories in Asia, which we talked about on part two of our containerization series. And these could spin up suddenly to complete a boutique order and then shut down just as quickly. This boutique factory capacity is often serving little boomlets and fads online, and Amazon Web Services is providing the matching digital infrastructure to support those bursts of activity. Later in the chapter, he discusses Uber being the data-slash-platform company pioneering selling contract labor piecework, and although he talks about some of the implications of that itself, I think he misses an opportunity to connect that to the piecework factories of containerization, which to me still seems like a significant development in the Third Industrial Revolution because it is devolving away from the 19th century consolidation of labor into long-term physical plants with economies of scale. Uber is set up much more like a cottage industry purchaser, specifying requirements of work to be performed, but never guaranteeing the work or its longevity. Tarnoff does explicitly make a reference to the shipping container revolution, but only for comparing the outsourcing of call center type jobs overseas via the power of the internet, as well as the literal data entry jobs overseas that train machine learning for pennies. He purely uses it as a comparison or analog, but he doesn't connect the dots as being the same process of deforming parts of capitalism back to their starting points with regard to the commodification of remote labor. The closest that he gets is identifying a, quote, global archipelago of contractors bound together by fiber optic cable, end quote, and commenting that now remote surveillance and discipline of remote workers is also possible which I suppose is a fair and significant difference from the earliest phases of capitalism. He comments on these workers being discarded like a virtual cloud machine when no longer needed, and again, I am reminded of those discarded products of the container supply chain boutique orders. Now, another thing that he briefly touches on, and you can read more about this in the book, is that as big data became an obsession with corporations and governments, it became imperative to have huge volumes of data storage and analysis capacity, unlike the previous eras of the internet and the web, and AWS was there to rent that capacity out to them. So again, you can't separate these various phenomena from each other, and, and it's all interrelated. 
He also talks in this chapter a bit about the rise of smartphones and the networked Internet of Things devices in the 2010s. He talks about the usual surveillance capitalism stuff here, but he also notes that an early DARPA internet project in the late 70s was to plug in a cargo plane to a network contacting a mainframe and get a 30-second calculation on the spot of how to load the plane correctly for various scenarios, including landing under enemy fire to reduce the risk of crashing from cargo shifting in a difficult situation. So in a sense, uh, this Internet of Things stuff kind of does actually go back to those 70s experiments that we talked about earlier with DARPA. Now, let's talk a little bit about big data as a speculative asset. Um, And this was an interesting section as well um, in this chapter. Many companies collect data with the vague promise that it will someday be profitable uh, or create such operational efficiencies that it makes a money-losing operation now suddenly valuable for down the line. Uh, Now, the podcast Trash Future, which uh, interviewed Tarnoff uh, for this book, uh, calls this, on many episodes, the principle of a wizard will do it. Um, But these companies are able to convince a lot of investors this is so manifestly true that they should be willing to accept losses on individual transactions, such as Uber rides, in order to gain more data points for the data mill and not just because they are undercutting the competition in the market, right? Usually the latter is what we hear about. Oh, we're going to undercut them now and then we'll drive out all the competition and we'll be the monopoly and then, you know, we can raise our prices. But there is the other side here that Tarnoff talks about, which is this idea of, no, due to AI and data harvesting, we're actually going to be able to do this so much better than everyone else that we will uh, obviously be valuable at some point down the line and therefore you should make us valuable now. Interestingly, also, though, Tarnoff does note that a lot of early big investors actually did manage to cash out their shares in companies like Uber at enormous profit just by letting the hype grow, but selling before the bubble could pop on them. These were speculative profits, not operational profits. Or I guess if you put it another way, it's just a pump and dump Ponzi scheme. Big data collection being a key pump or hype factor. Uh, Tarnoff says, quote, this is the Baroque phase of the Internet's privatization in which capital is so abundant and the potential returns so immoderate that investors can live on hope alone. And of course, we obviously talked about this in comparison in things like railroad speculation in the 19th century and so forth. You get a similar type of thing going on here, but again, even more vague and amorphous because it's just sort of in the cloud somewhere. Yeah, so chapter eight is called Inclusive Predators, and this chapter focuses on how the tech companies spread around the risk and impoverish people while concentrating wealth in fewer hands. But specifically, it zeroes in on the predatory inclusion of hiring, or rather contracting, the marginalized peoples of the world at home or abroad to perform digital piecework under grueling conditions or even traumatizing conditions in the case of online content moderators. The companies can say they are giving opportunities to non-white would-be workers on the fringes or poor women working from home, but these contracts are sub-poverty line here and pennies abroad. So it is a false inclusion. Um, It doesn't offer quality work to to these marginalized people. Um, The chapter also delves into algorithmic racism and how early internet culture remastered and reinforced existing offline racism or other bigotry even before the rise of the algorithms. Some examples, the modern examples are Facebook allowing housing ads to show up for white people, not black people, um, which is against the fair housing uh, laws. And um, 
Another example that Tarnoff gives is Google images showing black women for a search term, unprofessional hairstyles. Um, there's also a section on far right radicalized people via social media and the internet overall. Um, I didn't want to talk about this too much because again, we really want people to read the book. Um, so you can read for more examples and, and, and a further deeper dive into this uh, concept. So chapter nine is called Toward the Forest, presumably, you know, talking about missing the forest for the trees and so forth. Uh, so Tarnoff critically talks about this thing, which he refers to as the new Brandeisian ideology, talking about uh, the Supreme Court Justice Brandeis and his focus, uh, you know, back in the uh, progressive era on breaking up monopolies and that this was, you know, it was not progressive to have monopolies and it created these problems for consumers, et cetera. And so we should focus on on this. And so the new Brandeisian ideology, which Tarnoff criticizes, believes that breaking up the big tech companies will solve most of the problems with big tech. Uh this is not the view that Tarnoff shares. It's not the view that we share either, which is one reason that we definitely did like the book, even if there were certain aspects which we kind of wished it had gone into further. He cites Nick Cernicek criticizing for-profit competition in the internet because that drives the imperatives to maintain engagement and data gathering at all costs. Tarnoff also mentions that for-profit shareholder obligations restrict how much can be spent on content moderation as an expense of running the service. There is also an argument that smaller firms would have less dominance and capture of the regulatory process. That's something the new Brandeisians tend to argue. Uh, but the counter argument that he raises is that the existence of regulation pushes small firms to consolidate or even leave the market, thus returning big ones anyway, which is, again, not like a critique of regulation generically. It's just describing a process that tends to happen. Tarnoff argues that rulemaking and anti-monopoly strategies fall short of the lasting benefits that deprivatization would have, and I completely agree with that. Tarnoff also makes an interesting uh, comparison, I guess, to prison abolitionism in the sense that a deprivatization of the platforms would probably not just be a one-to-one -one replacement of something, but rather it would probably look like a totally new online social media space that would grow organically out of different factors once the profit motives aren't driving the design decisions from the beginning. Now, to my mind, this part doesn't quite make sense to me because I, I think it would be more likely that the existing companies would or could just get taken over as opposed to new ones being formed, at least initially. Um, but his point here is that it's just a really challenging scenario to imagine at all. And that's one of the reasons he makes that comparison to prison abolitionism. It's not just like, oh, we want the prisons to be run differently or to be nicer. It's like, how do you come up with an entire constellation of rehabilitative justice services that do a better job together uh, for our society? And so it's a similar type of thing here. It's like, in your head, you're thinking deprivatization means that the government nationalizes all of these things. And that's one potential scenario. But he's saying, no, 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 don't stop there with your imagination. Like, think way bigger than that. Think about like a totally different way that the internet could be set up if it hadn't been privatized in the first place, because the way that it developed is directly related to and only possible because of the privatization. He does say, instead of Facebook, imagine millions of social media communities, each with their own rules and customs and cultures. 
uh, end quote. And he cites ideas from Ethan Zuckerman about specialization of public social media sites. Um, so where I'm picturing a national flag carrier, Facebook or Twitter, uh, Tarnoff and Zuckerman are envisioning things more like local or regional and decentralized as well as uh, fractured in purpose. However, I will say this is an area where I start to like, it's some interesting ideas, but I do start to kind of diverge from the perspective of the book. I think that has some profoundly negative and disappointing implications. Um, Tarnoff believes that small public and community social media platforms are the only size that can be effectively governed in a participatory and democratic manner. Interesting point. But then he mentioned something like Mastodon, which has always seemed like a joke to me. That's for those who don't know, that's a social media site, kind of like a competitor to Twitter, I guess. Um, but it's a much smaller one. And I would argue, and this is based on my personal extensive experience on social media platforms over the years in various corners of the web. I would argue that he is really missing a key thing here about network effects. And this is something like network effects is something he's talked about in earlier parts of the book, as we've mentioned, which is this. People prefer to join sites or communities with high participation, and they simply don't join if no one is there. Uh, Google Plus being a clear example of this. Rachel and I met through Google Plus, essentially. Uh, so we're like weird outliers on that front. And there was kind of a little bit of a vibrant community, but you couldn't really get other people to join it because there weren't that many people there. And there were certain features that were missing as well. So then people didn't want to join. But like a lot of it just had to do with like it never really got that like big participation. And so this idea of like totally fracturing the internet, like completely balkanizing it into these like local community, like intranets almost, or things with like minimal amounts of connectivity to the outside world. Uh, I, I see the point that he's making, but it just doesn't like, it's not really intuitively making sense to me and, and seems like it just wouldn't take off. Um, um yeah. If I can interject, uh, something I kind of envisioned while I was reading this chapter is kind of a return to the web forum days. Um, so I think rather than being local or regionalized, I think you can have communities that are from all over the world, but kept kind of on a smaller scale. So they are easier to moderate and administer. So I, like I, maybe it's that romanticization of that era because I did meet a lot of people there and and created lasting friendships. But I don't. I think the genie is out of the bottle, and we can't just cram it back in and return to that era because um, the monetization and the big data gathering aspect has exploded. I don't know that we can go back, and maybe we do have to look forward and look for um, kind of that. Um, and, we have to imagine that future in a, in a completely different configuration. I'm, I'm not really sure. Well, it's just the thing that I'm having a hard time with here is that era is partly the way that it was because there were a lot fewer people on the internet. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. Having these platforms like Facebook and Twitter that everyone, and I'm, you know, being facetious here is not really everyone, but significantly larger numbers of people want to join and use. That's what makes them take off. Right. Like it was a yeah, you and I are weird outliers who hung out on these type of forums. I, I didn't even hang out on too many forums myself because they would make me too mad and, and whatever. But like <laughs> so I wasn't hardcore in the trenches like some of our listeners and friends. You were definitely, um, you know, active on some of these sites in a longer and more substantial way than I was. Uh, but 
the 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 era of the sites before Facebook, they were governable to a certain extent because they were small and they never really took off in a huge way. Things like Facebook, where everyone was like, I want to be on there. I want to upload my pictures. I want to talk to other people. Yeah, as you said, the genie is out of the bottle. We're in a different sort of paradigm. But like, it wasn't just a question of, oh, do people not have the technological access? Think about it. People didn't necessarily demand to be on the internet before there was much to do there, right? Like it was always a small number of relatively niche people that were on these different sites or even in the pre-web days, you know, using Usenet and things like that. And people clamored for these like large, bigger platforms. And I guess, you know, the Mastodon thing, I think there's some way that they're like kind of servers or something like they're sort of grouped in clusters. I don't really know. Um, and so you could, maybe you have that, right. That, and that's sort of your comparison to the, the kind of constellation of, of different forums and things like that. Um, and again, I'm not saying there's like no utility to it, right. I think we're going to talk later about this. Like you can imagine like, you know, that you have your, uh, your Boise internet or whatever, that all the people in Boise are on in Idaho, right. And they all talk about Boise stuff and whatever, but like, and maybe, maybe, maybe it is this lack of imagination, right? Because maybe the point isn't to have people online all day, engaging with it all day, right? Like they go on, they talk about Boise for a few minutes, they log off and go about their day and then come back on later to see if anyone replied. Like maybe that's good. I don't know. Maybe I'm just not like imagining outside of this frame. Um, but I just, I, I don't know. It didn't, I, I'm, I'm having trouble like Im- picturing in my head what this might look like. Um, but let's keep going because there's definitely more here uh, and more things to think about and consider. So I do agree with Tarnoff that the interconnection of email across email providers was crucial to the success of the internet and that the walled garden approach of DM direct message systems of each platform is a really bad step backwards. Um, but email is also extremely simple, right? So email is a lot simpler than everything else that's provided on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, But I do agree with him, at least narrowly, on the point that, like, going to a thing where you can only message someone if they're also on the platform is, like, that's not great. That's a step backward. Um, Email was great because if I'm on Gmail and you're on Yahoo, we can email back and forth, even though they're different companies. We can email back and forth if we have different internet service providers. We can email back and forth if those internet service providers are on different backbone company providers and so on. That's a good thing. That was a huge uh, boost to the rise of the internet, uh, being able to do that. And it's not good if you have to like say, okay, now... And I've had this happen, right? Like I've had situations where like I messaged someone I went to high school with on Facebook because they had a Facebook account, but it turns out they don't use Facebook that often. So they didn't see my message. So I had to go think, okay, who's a mutual friend that I know that is on there more? I'll send her a message and tell her to text this person because I don't have that person's number or I don't have that person's email. And then she will tell her to go look on Facebook so that she can reply and say, I don't use Facebook anymore. Send me a text at this number or send me an email or whatever. Or, you know, I, I do use Instagram, but I don't use Facebook, even though they're owned by the same company. And it's a different DM system on Instagram versus Facebook, even though it's the same company, et cetera. So Tarnoff makes a good point there. Uh, He also imagines citing Darius Kazemi. And this was a really fascinating section that like stuck in my mind after reading this book. 
he imagines each public library in the country running an interoperable federated social media server that anyone with a library card can join. Now, obviously, that means no anonymity, so you do have to consider that. But librarians could also organize local information in a relevant and searchable way on a local server, and this would also help address the crisis in local media coverage. Um, and now we're getting into some actionable idea territory here, even though you are having to really think outside the box and like break away from that mode of one big website that everyone is all on at the same time. Uh, he also talks a little bit about co-op only use of app-based contracting services, right? So abolish all the companies like Uber and Lyft. Uh, there's a recent co-op competitor I've heard about in New York City that is competing with Uber. That's a co-op. And so his suggestion there is that those type of uh, piecework contracting services could be done as a co-op rather than a uh, capitalist uh, cottage uh, system type of thing. Um if data gathering and monetization continues, the book suggests people should have the right to vote collectively on acceptable or unacceptable uses slash sales slash analysis of that big data. And then has an interesting quote, which I take it to heart. I'm having trouble imagining this. He says, quote, these sketches are a good start, but they still bear the stamp of the internet that they are trying to escape, end quote. So again, to use that analogy to the prison abolition conversation, like sometimes you have to just completely stop thinking about the existing model that we have and the way that we got there and think about like, could we do it completely differently? On the other hand, I tend to be more of a pragmatic and practical thinker that says, okay, well, here is where we are and people are going to be thinking in terms of things that they're already familiar with. How do we get to maybe the next best thing or something like that? Again, I don't agree with the people that are just like, oh, we'll just break up the big tech companies and all our problems will be solved because I think that's completely naive and delusional. Um, but I am having trouble making that imaginative leap to something else. Tarnoff advocates for a bottom-up innovation of the internet, and he cites it as, as an example the uh, 1980s la UK Labour Party's control of the Greater London Council and that Greater London Council's, uh, quote, technology networks, this was during a period of high unemployment of skilled labor due to deindustrialization, and those technology networks provided space and tools for working prototypes similar to maker spaces of today. The designs for the things that were built then went into a product bank that other people could use and riff on, and for-profit firms could license these designs for a fee that went back into financing the networks. Similar to this model, Tarnoff calls for democratizing the development of internet technology, giving tools to working-class communities to make their own products to serve their needs uh, rather than maximizing profit, and they can imagine how they want to do it. I would argue that this chapter, with all its various ideas, is basically anarcho-syndicalism for the internet, but I guess that the question is how much you dial up the anarcho end of that compound phrase, right? So I jokingly said one big internet website, that would be on one end of the spectrum, versus everything is boiled down to the level of an email-style interoperability between individual libraries. Uh, and speaking of interoperability, uh, he concludes this chapter with a citation of Cory Doctorow, who's another person that writes on these type of topics, although more in the new Brandeisian mold, I think. Uh, and Doctorow talks about this concept of adversarial interoperability, 
Uh, and that could be a legal or regulatory strategy to start breaking tech monopoly power by forcing open those walled gardens for more open source access. So you could have a regulatory strategy that starts to break down the existing patterns by saying, like email or like internet protocol at the beginning, you have to be able to work across lines, right? Like you can send a DM from Facebook to Twitter or something like that, even though they're different companies. Uh, I mean, that's like a really, you know, specific example, I guess, think bigger than that, but that, you know, that there would have to be this um, way of working across these sites. And that would also facilitate some of the innovative development at the ground level. Finally, the book has a conclusion section called Future Nostalgia, which I did really connect with this. I like this section of the book because I strongly relate to the idea, and I think it's sort of the basis of this show, at least over the past several years, is the idea of looking to the past not for some sort of nostalgic mourning of the roads not taken, but instead to get ideas from the paths that were almost taken or were only briefly tried so that we can imagine a new future starting from our present. So it's not just like, oh, I wish we could go back to the 90s, but like, hey, what are some things from the 80s and 90s that we almost did or thought about doing that would have been a different way of doing it? Could we bring back any of that? Is any of that applicable uh, to the future course? Um, because, again, the ideological alchemy process tells you that it was always going to end like that, and it was always going to end up in that direction, and that's simply not true. That was a choice that was made. Tarnoff also says that any movement can only succeed if it can, quote, envision a different future with the force necessary to achieve it, end quote, which means there are many good ideas from the past that were never forcefully adopted, because their backers lacked the strength or organization or whatever to implement them, which is not the same as these were bad ideas, that's why we left them in the past. It is these were ideas that may or may not have been good, but they didn't get implemented because they didn't have political force behind them. I also fully agree that if you don't understand the history of how we got to our present situation, we cannot possibly accurately target and defeat our opposition because we need to attack and dismantle the actual basis of their support and power. Now, there's two uh, long sections here from the conclusion that I did want to quote from. And then again, I'll encourage people to buy the book from Verso and read it. Quote, up the stack among the so-called platforms, the path to deprivatization is less linear. There is no equivalent of the community network. Here, what's needed is the imaginative work of abolition. Two maneuvers are involved. First, shrinking the footprint of the online malls, which means making common cause with anti-monopoly advocates. Yet the goal of deprivatization is not an internet with more competitive markets, but an internet where markets matter less. This is why, while working to disassemble the online malls, we must also be assembling a constellation of alternatives that can lay claim to the space they currently occupy. And these must be real alternatives, not smaller or more entrepreneurial versions of the tech giants, but institutions of a fundamentally different kind, engineered to curtail the power of the profit motive and to enshrine the practices and principles of democratic decision-making. Some are already emerging in rudimentary form, self-governing social media communities, worker-owned app-based services, but they will need to be refined and expanded through public investment. We will also need spaces that help new alternatives emerge, where people can collectively articulate their needs and construct the online worlds capable of meeting them. And that's the end of the first quote. And the second quote is this, making it possible for the world's computers to talk to one another was an impressive technical achievement. Making this machinic conversation serve an end other than infinite accumulation will be a political one. 
It may seem unlikely, but so was the internet. History is filled with improbable turns that look inevitable in retrospect. The future will be too. End quote. So, Rachel, I wanted to get your closing thoughts on this book. This has obviously been a long episode, but we did want to go through it. One of the things that I think you and I both felt was that there's a ton of interesting ideas that are brought up and anecdotes and specific examples and questions that are raised. But in some ways, it is a little bit surface level, kind of like a collection of essays. Yeah, I I definitely got that impression as I was reading just because the chapters were so discreet. And I think there were some connections made between chapters and concepts, but I think um, it kind of lacked some of that depth. Um, And also uh, the main body of the book uh, without the notes is less than 200 pages. So I think it was a good beginning, but um, yeah, it just didn't have enough enough time to develop those concepts into something deeper, which I think is something that we both were looking for while we were reading this book. And I will say the anecdotes are great. Like that was, there was a lot of color in there that I didn't know about, but this is one reason that we went through this book in such a level of detail that we did, even though it is a relatively sparse book is because again, it's not bad. Like there were definitely things that we thought about and we talked about on this episode today where we were like, Oh, this made me think of this, or this made me wonder that that's just not really like, explored further in the book so we wanted to talk about it in detail so that we could talk about some of the uh ideas that we had and the thoughts that we had on it and critiques and things that we agreed with i definitely agree with the perspective overall which is just like the private marketized competitive version is such a disaster and i think he says this in the book like the idea of oh we just need more competition when competition creates a lot of these pressures of how to run these sites in a bad way that's bad for people and bad for society like that doesn't do us any good and these sites are just going to keep consolidating again and again no matter how many times you break them up that's true of all the companies that were broken up during the anti-monopoly wave and the brandeis era right so why would you just keep repeating that cycle like you're not learning anything from it just go back to square one and think how do we envision this in a totally different way and make this you know, some sort of people owned internet, whether it's public through the government at a national level or a local level or whatever, it needs to be done in a different way. Yeah, I think that's something we've picked up on because we have studied the history of these these cycles so extensively. We've seen this uh, proliferation of companies that inevitably consolidate. So I think um, we definitely have have developed that that position that just anti-monopoly monopoly measures are not sufficient on their own there definitely has to be some sort of nationalization process that goes along with it to create lasting and more effective change and i think that definitely applies to the internet as well all right well rachel the book again is internet for the people by ben tarnoff published by verso in 2022 Thanks for coming on the show to talk about this book with me. Yeah, thanks for having me.